Good morning. It's a little different to be 10 feet to my right and to your left. It's not about, yeah, about 10 feet. It's a little different. I get to see you a little bit more and a little different perspective on all your faces. Normally, I only see about this side. Anyway, uh, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 24 today, covering a lot of texts that's been pretty uh, consistent through the summer. So get ready for me to summarize a lot of things, and we're going to read some key passages. Acts 24. And as I was thinking about this, I thought... um, I'm sure a lot of you have had the same experience as me. Uh, well, actually, I have never read a novel and then seen the movie version and then gone, oh, the book is so much better. And that's because I don't read a lot of novels. But my wife has read certain novels, and then together we've watched the movie version, and the whole time she's complaining to me about how oh, the book is just so much, not the whole time, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but she has complained to me, oh, but if you just read the book, you would know. Like, that is not how that part goes. Or they completely cut this whole thing out. And part of the reason this happens uh, is because, if you think about it, a movie director only has about an hour and a half or two hours to reproduce all the intricate details and plot twists and character development that a book has an unlimited number of pages to do. And it's his own interpretation of what has kind of gone down in the book. And so my point is, a movie director, when he's reproducing, when he's making a film version of a book, he has to choose what is vital to include in the book and what isn't. And so naturally, in choosing some things, and saying yes to some things, he's saying no to other things. Does that make sense? So he's leaving things out. And uh, I think that this is a helpful way for us to think about the book of Acts. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is like a director. He's like a movie director. And he's looking at the detailed events of real life, of real historical things that happened, some of which he was present for. And he's choosing, picking and choosing what to include and what to exclude. And so, if you think about it, he only had so much parchment to write on. Expensive material in this day and age. And he had to be very selective. So, my question is then, why in the world are we going to read Paul's conversion for the third time today? Like, he had so much room. He only had so much room. So why did he include Paul's conversion three times? Why is what is here, here? And I think that as we ask that, that's a good question for us to be asking as we read a lot of narrative in the Bible. Why did the author specifically choose to include this? Because he had to be selective. What's the purpose? And so my hope today, and this is going to be our big idea, uh, which will maybe come up. Yes, there we go. Um... My hope is that we're all going to agree that by the end of this, as we travel through these three chapters, that we will see that God accomplishes his mission through adverse situations and the message and the model of the cross. So if you think three M's, I I do work with Stephen every week, so I had to come up with three M's. 
uh, mission, message, and model. And when I say model, I don't mean model airplane. I mean model for life, an, an example. So mission, message, and model. Those are three kind of guiding themes as we go through this. So just to give a little bit of context, Stephen, uh, Pastor Stephen taught through uh, chapters 21 through 23 about last week. And we've seen that Paul has ended his third missionary journey. He's come to Jerusalem. He's basically attacked by a mob. Uh, he's arrested. Uh, the Roman soldiers don't really know what to do with him. And they're like, you know, what? we're going to pass him off to this guy named Felix, who's the governor of this region. And now we jump into the middle of this story where Paul is with Felix. And Stephen mentioned last week that in this part of Acts, there are five defense speeches that Paul gives. Today we're covering three of them. And so there's three main sections in our text represented by three speeches of Paul and three different rulers that Paul talks to. Does that make sense? Just to kind of give some guidance. Um, But important for our purposes is to remember... Um, God's promise to Paul, which Stephen brought up last week. And it's in chapter 23, verse 11. I'll read it. It says, so God's talking to Paul. He's in the middle of just being attacked. And, I mean, you can imagine the discouragement he's facing. He says, God tells him, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, as you've been my witness in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So God's saying, Paul, you are going to Rome. This is my decision. I've decided this. This is the direction we're headed. And really, it's this promise which dictates the whole rest of the book. Um, And what this should also do is act like like a link back to chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told, it's, it's the theme verse for Acts, where Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, I'm leaving, and you are going to be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea, on to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this in micro scale, this in bigger scale, has been happening throughout the entire book of Acts, and Paul will end in Rome, which for them was the ends of the earth. But as we travel through this last portion of Paul's life, what we see is that happening on a micro scale. So last week, Paul was in Jerusalem. This week, he's moving to Caesarea, which is in Samaria. And next week, Pastor Phil's going to be covering the last few chapters here of Acts, and Paul's going to Rome. So what we see is God is moving his mission forward. And this is the trajectory of the book now. So we're going to jump into our text, but we need to keep that in mind as we, as we go through this. So like I said, I'm going to be summarizing a lot of things. Um, so like I said, chapter 24, Paul and the Jewish leaders are before Felix. He's a Roman governor. And what happens is it's like a courtroom scene The Jews begin by accusing Paul of two things. And we're going to read about this in a second, verses 5 through 8. But the two things that they accuse him of, and the two things Paul constantly gets accused of throughout our whole text today, is one, religious crimes against Judaism, and two, that he caused civil unrest in the temple. He committed crimes against Rome. He caused a mob. So we read in verses 5 through 8, there's a a spokesman for the Jewish uh, leaders, And he says, verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You can see how they're trying to set him up. He even tried to profane the temple, religious crimes, but we seized him. By examining him him yourself, you'll be able to find out 
from him about everything of which we accuse him. So they're falsely accusing Paul of all these things. And now Paul responds in verses 12 through 15 and he says, and again, we're just reading a portion of what he says, but it sums it up well. He says, verse 12, They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul responds to both things now. He says, listen, I didn't incite the riot. It was the Jews that attacked me in the temple. That was last week. And listen, I'm actually just being a faithful Jew. I believe in Yahweh. I'm just following what the Old Testament, the law and the prophets said. So he's defending himself. So after this, we get to verse 22, and it says this. So again, they've just had this, this back and forth, and now look at what Felix says. But Felix, having rather an accurate knowledge of the way, that is Christianity, put them off. He just puts everybody off. He says, you know what? I don't feel like talking about this. Saying, when, Lysi- when Lysias, the, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in, in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his pre- friends should be pre- prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix is like, you know what? I don't really feel like talking about this. I'm just going to procrastinate. I don't really know what to do with this Paul. I don't know what to do with the situation. I'm going to stick Paul back in jail and kind of wash my hands this whole thing. Does that make sense? And now we get to verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, Paul's left in prison, but it's important to notice what is going down when Paul's in prison. Paul has two years worth of opportunities to share about the faith in Jesus Christ with this ruler, Felix, and his wife. I mean, all we're doing is recalling Jesus' promises to his disciples that would stand before kings and rulers. So Paul's two years in prison, and he gets all these opportunities to witness to Felix and his wife. Like, you can't plan this stuff out. So Paul's sitting there, but important for our purposes, and what I want us to see here, is the utter injustice of what is happening. Do you guys, did you guys pick up on this? First of all, Felix unjustly keeps him in prison because he just doesn't really know what to do with Paul. Second, it's for two years. I mean, imagine two years stuck in an unjust system in prison. Three, part of the, it seems like part of the reason Paul, he kept Paul in prison was because he wanted a bribe. He's like, I hope Paul gives me some money so he gets his freedom. It just keeps getting worse. 
And then to top it all off, when he leaves office and Festus comes in, the next ruler, Paul is a pawn in a political game because Felix wants to please the Jews. So he leaves Paul in prison. And what we should be recalling is that promise. You guys remember that promise that I brought up at the beginning? Paul, you're going to Rome. I'm accomplishing my mission. But where's Paul? He's stuck in jail for two years. We're going to get to more of this in a second. Let's continue. We get into chapter 25. So Felix is off the scene. Paul's in jail, facing injustice. The situation is not super awesome for Paul. But he's getting to witness about Jesus Christ. Festus enters the picture, who's Felix's predecessor, and he quickly is approached by the Jews. So the Jews are just waiting for the right opportunity to come and kill Paul. And that's literally what they have planned. They have an ambush planned. They're like, Festus, can we go? Can you bring Paul back to Jerusalem? Festus doesn't do this. But the whole reason they want to bring him to Jerusalem is because they want to ambush him and kill Paul. So basically, to summarize, they have another hearing, and it's basically the same thing. The Jews accuse Paul. Paul defends himself. But then this happens. So let's go to 25, chapter 25, verse 9. It says, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Again, just political games. Paul's a political pawn. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges against me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. I appeal to Caesar. And Paul had the right to do this as a Roman citizen. He was a Roman citizen, and he could, in certain situations, Roman citizens could appeal to the emperor to hear their case. So he says, you know what? I'm going to the Supreme Court. I'm going to Caesar. I'm going all the way to the top. And where does Caesar reside? He resides in Rome. Then Festus, so we're continuing to read, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And this moment is definitive for this promise that God gave Paul back in chapter 23. It's definitive for the plan of God, and it's the beginning of how Paul will get to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. The point, I, the point of me bringing all this up and detailing all of this is to see that God is actively working to bring about his promises and to fulfill his mission. So this is the first part of our big idea. God accomplishes his mission through adverse situations. God is actively working to bring about his promises and to fulfill his mission to bring the gospel to the world. But notice, this is not outside of adverse and confusing situations. But God actually uses those situations. It's in the midst of those situations that God is bringing about his promises. Stephen and I were talking this week and he threw out the word to me, detour. And I thought it was a very good word. This adverse detour that Paul is in the midst of. He's two years chilling out in prison. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? And it's adverse. He's facing utter injustice. That detour is the, actually the exact path that God is using to get him to Rome. Do you guys see this? 
this unexpected time of waiting is actually part of the journey. It is not a hiccup in the journey. It is not a mistake in the journey. It is part of the journey. There is no other path. And so I just, as I was reading through this this week, I just had to ask myself, man, imagine being stuck in prison for two years, facing injustice, being used as a pawn in a political game, people wanting to use me, or maybe we should just make it closer for us, bring it closer to home. Imagine being stuck in a pandemic, right? Imagine being stuck in a time where the political climate is very upsetting or confusing, And you know, my tendency is to project. My tendency, and I don't know if you're like me, but my tendency is to project out into the future and think, you know, when this happens, when this whole thing ends, when COVID's done, then I'll get on with my life. Then I won't have to wear a mask anymore. Then I won't have to, we could just go on and on and on. When finally, when I marry that person, or when I get out of this job that I hate. I mean, everybody, we, we have, at least I, have this tendency to project. And, 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 and you know what it does? It doesn't allow me to be here and now. And what I might be viewing as a detour, as an unexpected time of waiting, as a hiccup in the journey, maybe that's actually the exact thing that God is using to bring about his purposes. So the question is not, when is this going to pass? But what is God doing right here, right now, when I'm imprisoned for two years facing injustice? You know what he's doing? He's putting Felix before me and his wife. I'm going to be faithful to talk to them. You know, the, the, the really interesting thing about this is that Luke, I mean, he, he kind of just adds this as like a footnote. You know, Paul was in prison for two years. Let's get on with the story. And, and my, my, I, we just have to think, why, why does Luke breeze over this? And I think it's because he's writing this and he has the larger plan of God in his mind. He sees the larger purposes of God at work. And I think what's implicit for us in this text is that we also, as the church, are, we can rise above a purely horizontal and circumstantial perspective and rise above all of those things from our perspective when we're looking down at the situation and trust God's larger agenda and his promises. And you know, the big promise God hasn't promised you that you're going to get a new job. He hasn't actually promised that COVID is going to end in the next year. We just don't know. But you know what he has promised? God has promised that he's going to bring about his mission of saving rebellious humans, of restoring them into the image of his son, and bringing about his kingdom where all that is broken and wrong in the world will be made right. That is the ultimate promise that we hold to. And that's the ultimate thing that we hold to in adverse and confusing detours and unexpected things. God is doing all of that in the midst of these complexities and life situations. 
So he's bringing about his mission through adverse situations. And so during this time, as we keep reading chapter 25, starting in verse 13 through 27, we're not going to read all of this. Um, so there's Festus. He's the second ruler. So we said there's three rulers. So there's Felix. Festus is now on the scene. And he's just like, again, he's also baffled. I don't know what to do with this Paul guy. This whole situation is really confusing. And the reason it's confusing is because he's Roman. He's not Jewish. And the Jews are accusing him of religious and civil crimes. But Festus is looking at this whole situation with Paul, and he's going, this guy didn't do anything. And if you read verse 19 of chapter 25, it's actually kind of comical. This guy, King Agrippa, comes. I'll talk about him in a second. But Festus is describing this whole situation, and he says, I don't, he says, rather they, the Jews, they had certain points of dispute with him, that's Paul, about their own religion and a certain Jesus, some guy named Jesus who, who was dead, but Paul thinks he's alive, right? I mean, he's just like, I don't know, it's like their internal debate, like why are we involved in this? So what happens, Festus is like confused about this whole situation. King Agrippa comes down. So this is Herod Agrippa II. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the guy who was killing infants when Jesus was born. So this guy is a fellow ruler, and he comes to visit Festus, and Festus has a consultation with Agrippa about what to do with Paul. And this is because Festus was very well acquainted with Jewish customs, and it's because Festus, like I said, he just doesn't know what to do. Paul didn't do anything. And we read this very explicitly in multiple places, but we're going to read it explicitly in verses 25 through 26. Festus is speaking. He said, I found that he, this is Paul, had, no, had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. He's like, I don't even know what to put in my report to Caesar. I, I, like, what kind of report do I write up when I send him? So Agrippa comes. He wants to hear Paul for himself. And we get this scene where Agrippa walks in in his pomp and all of his glory. And there's, you know, it's just like this, he's, the, he's this king, he's this ruler. And then you have Paul standing there in his chains and his weakness. So that's the scene, and then we get into chapter 26, and we're just going to read a large portion of text. So I encourage you to follow on, along. We're going to read verses 1 through 29. So again, this is the scene. Agrippa in all of his pomp, Paul in all of his weakness. It says, the text says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Let's listen to Paul patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So Paul's recounting his past here. And now I stand, before you, I stand here on trial because of the hope 
be, because of my hope in the promises in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was con- was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Na- the name of Jesus of Nazareth. As I did so in Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, Paul was a bad dude. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand to your feet, for I have appealed to you for this purpose. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open the eye, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, are we hearing Acts 1-8 here, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have, ha- I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was praying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You've got to love the Bible. Paul, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. Like, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is, dri- is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Can you imagine Paul saying this to a king? No, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become as I am, except for these chains. Do we see what's going on here? What is the message of Paul's life? He has one moment to speak to this guy. What is the message of his life? What is the message that Paul makes sure to proclaim? 
And the message that we see he proclaims, it's the message of the cross. This is our second part of our big idea. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see exactly what that good news is in verse 23. Where Paul says, The Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The gospel concerns the historically rooted consummation of the plan of God as revealed in the Old Testament to send his son that he might suffer and die on behalf of the sins of rebellious mankind and that he might be raised from the dead, that he might give light to all people. So that first part we're used to hearing, but what does this light mean? I mean, it's a little ambiguous that he gives light to our people, Paul saying the, the Jews and to the Gentiles, to, to everyone. What is this light? And if we backtrack to verse 18, when Paul's recounting what the Lord commissioned him to do, his commission was to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light. There's our word light. And so he starts defining what this light is. From the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the light that the gospel brings, you know what that light is? It's redemption from the power of Satan. It's forgiveness of sins. It's a place among God's people. It's inheritance in the family of God. Paul talks a lot about the resurrection from the dead. It's resurrection from the dead. It's eternal hope and life. And moreover, note that this gospel message is not a, a, an, an out of this world in the sense that it's, it's insane. It's insanity. This is not an insane message. Paul says, contrary to public opinion, that this consists of true and rational words. And the point of detailing all of this for us is to see that God is accomplishing his mission in this way. He's using adverse situations, but he's also using the message of the cross, to save mankind. And he's using the church as they proclaim the message of the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the message that Paul was about, and this is the message that we're to be about. My family and I, as many of you know, we were missionaries in Croatia for about nine years. We moved back a year ago on Tuesday. It's been almost a year with you guys. And, um, you know, we moved back in a pretty weird time to move back. Like, there's COVID craziness, there's political dissension, there's public confusion, and I'm just, like, trying to get my head on straight and not speak in Croatian. Um, And and then, you know, we had to add words to our vocabulary, vocabulary, like maskers and vaxxers and anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers and... Like, there's this whole new rhetoric that we had to incorporate into our lives. I mean, it's just, it's been a wild ride. But we also came back during a time when there's a lot of voices proclaiming a lot of different messages and trying to get everybody on board with their narrative. Have you felt this tension? And when I read this, and when we read through Acts, you know what I come away with? I come away with, the message that I'm supposed to be about. The message that is supposed to define and shape my life. It's the message of the gospel. 
It's the message that the church has always proclaimed. It's the message that God calls his church to proclaim. We can talk about a lot of stuff, can't we? And especially when we're on online forums or Facebook or something, people let their mouths or their fingers run wild. Things that you would say to somebody over the internet, you would never say to them in person. We can be about a lot of messages. But the thing I I was asking myself this week as I was prepping this and that I put forth before all of us today is, is, man, like, there's so many messages I can be about, but what is the true and rational message that I need to be about? The one that God is backing. The one that God is behind. And it's the gospel. It's the message that both we and the world needs. I say we need it because um, messages exert pressure on our lives and they shape us into who we are. You know, I was talking with somebody um, recently and they said, uh, just in the middle of a conversation, they said, I have the news on all the time and I wonder why I'm stressed out. (laughs) And I mean, messages shape us. And so what is, is this message shaping us? Is it, is it informing how we think through the times that we live in? If my diet consists of only the news, and much more so comparatively to this, I just, I just wonder how that's going to shape me as a person. If that was shaping Paul, and he was all caught up in all the things going on, I mean, I, he had one thing to proclaim. And I, and I say that it's, it's the message that the, that, that the world needs because this, this is the message the world needs. This is the message Paul said, I stand before those who are small and great today. I wish that all of you would be like me except for these chains. I wish that you would all be Christians. Um, and I couldn't help think of a woman in our church in Zagreb. That's the capital city of Croatia where we planted a small church. Um, I'll do, her name was, we'll, we'll, just use, we'll say her name was M for the purposes of um, uh, just, I didn't ask her if I could show this. So uh, her name is M, and she was part of an ESL program that we were running out of our church space as an outreach to our community. Um, she'd been coming for, uh, I think, about a month or two, and she was coming to this thing. She knew that we were a church. She knew that I was the pastor of this church, um, and we had had a few conversations we ended up having an evangelistic um, event at our church. Uh, there was some music, and we had some people sharing their testimonies, and the gospel was presented. And so she came out to this thing. She heard somebody's testimony about how they met Jesus and how they were saved, and the gospel was presented. Um, and I just I didn't know what happened that night. A week later, she comes back to the ESL class, and she was the only one that showed up that day. And I had another buddy of mine, another believer there, and she just broke down in tears and said, Ben, I don't know what happened to me last Saturday night, um, but I, what, what is this about? And so my friend and I are talking with her, taking her through the normal, you know, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and all these things. And she just said, stop, I just want Jesus. And we said, all right, I mean, this is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. 
It's turning from yourself and from your sin, repenting, turning to Jesus in faith and clinging to him and following him. It's giving your life over to him, receiving the light that we talked about. And this so changed her life. You know, in Croatia, they are not well off financially. The average paycheck is maybe about $700 a month. In their, in their, you know, that's the conversion rate. Um, and a lot of people, you know, in order to survive, they leave the country to go to other countries to work. So they either, so this is, I, I realized this as I, more so when I started an ESL class, and I thought, oh man, I'm helping everybody get out of the country. This is not my, they all want to learn English, so they can go to Australia or, or to Canada. And I'm like, this is not why I'm here. This is not my purpose. But hopefully some come to know Jesus and they want to stay. And you know what, M of her own volition, shortly after she got saved, the whole reason she was coming to this ESL class was because she wanted to move to Australia. This is her, like, long-term goal, is to go make money in Australia. So she's learning English. She comes to me and she said, Ben, I can't leave. My family doesn't know him. My countrymen don't know him. And it's so, Jesus so radically changed her life. I mean, that is the power of this message. That's why I say, this is what our world needs. And this is what we need. And that's just one testimony of a hundred testimonies in this room. And so I don't know all of you here today, if, if you walked in here and you're like, you are not speaking true and rational words, I would just say, I would warmly commend you to come to Jesus and to repent, and to turn to him, and receive life. That is the message that God uses to accomplish his mission. And so we move on to these last few verses. The, the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see the irony here? How this ends? He could have gotten out, but he didn't. Paul chose to go to Caesar. He chose to go to Rome and set himself up. Something that uh, our pastor Stephen has shown us throughout the series multiple times is that various people in the book of Acts are intentionally portrayed by Luke. Remember, he's, he's the movie director being selective and portraying things in a certain way to, to, to send a message to his readers. Certain people are portrayed in Luke as being in the likeness of Jesus, especially at his crucifixion. So, so just, just as we think about our text, and if you go home and read this whole thing, which we didn't read today, you notice a few things. Both Jesus and Paul are accused by the Jews. They both stand before three sets of people. The Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish rulers, the Roman, a Roman governor, and a ruler of the Herodian dynasty. They are both proclaimed innocent multiple times by Roman rulers. Jesus is beaten, bloodied, and weak, and so Paul is almost beaten and shown to be weak and in change before the pompous king Agrippa. And as God worked through the weakness and the shame of the cross, so we see that as Paul follows in the footsteps of Jesus and takes up his own cross, God works through Paul's insufficiency and weaknesses. And so this is the last point or a big idea, that God accomplishes his purposes through the model of the cross. Notice the, the mission and the message of the cross shaped Paul into who he was. And we see that throughout his whole life. They made him a man of the cross. 
And I think this involves two elements. The first takeaway is that it involves weakness. The cross is not a symbol of power and strength. It is to us, but it was not. It's also an image of shame and weakness. And notice here, God powerfully accomplishes his work through those who are insufficient and weak in and of themselves. Many of you know about the golf tournament that's coming up. Jason announced it this morning. I had the privilege of being asked to be a part of the team. But this is not any team. This is the worst team that loses every year. Jenna knows what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so just... Steve Pastouche. Um, this, this team, supposedly, I just, I, I just got back. I, and I told the person that asked me, I said, listen, you do realize I have never played a real game of golf in my life. And he said, perfect. <laughs> you, that's exactly why I'm asking you. The, the, the point is, I, I think we have this misconception, at least I do, that the people God uses in his kingdom and in his service are the strong, the mighty, those, have, those who have it all together. And that is just not true. You, you know the people that God uses? People like Paul. Weak, weak men and women. Who, you know, living out of weakness, and in that way modeling the cross, is a prerequisite for being used by God. So for those of us who have checkered pasts, who struggle with temptation and sin, who are not the best communicators of the gospel, who are weighed down by depression and carry shame, you fit the bill. You get to be on the team. Those are the people that God uses. And Paul exemplifies that for us. But the second thing is that it involves submission. It involves a laying down of your life. I mean, that is the cross. Jesus set aside his will to take up the cross. The hill that he died on. He bloodied. He, he stained the ground with blood, sweat, and tears to be obedient to the will of the Father. That was the hill that he died on. And so Paul, in the same way, he sets aside self-preservation and he chooses to go to Rome. To take up the will of the Father even though he could have been set free. Paul is set on this priority. If we remember back in Acts 20, 20, 24, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says this. It's like his mission statement for life. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his life. It was a cross-shaped life involving self-denial and a laying side of his own will to take up the will of God. And if, if we are to model the cross, it involves exemplifying weakness, but also a laying aside of our own purposes and our own will to accomplish the purposes and the will of God in the world. And when I read the... Paul's life of commitment, and I see Jesus, I read about him on the cross. You know, the cross, this is, this is why I say it's a model for life. It doesn't function just as a symbol of salvation for us. It functions as a way of life, a model. 
And this affects my priorities. It affects my wallet. It affects my interactions with others. It, it creates a posture of humility, which we need a lot of in the times we're living in, and especially as we as a church navigate the various things that we have to navigate. You know, just as a side note, like, being surrounded with the life of Paul reminds me of, like, man, I want to surround myself with people who are, cro- who are cross-shaped in their living. I mean, it's, that's a powerful thing when you're with somebody who's, who's just surrendered to the will of God in their life. It reminds us of what Jesus said, to seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. So, we've seen three things, and we'll, I'll just close with this. We've seen that God is committed to his mission and is actively accomplishing it, even through the adversity that we face, even through the detours, even through the hard things. And this offers us security and perspective and hope. We've seen that he uses the message of the cross to accomplish that mission as well. It's the message that is to define and exude from our lives as the church. And finally, he uses his servants who model the cross with their lives, living in dependence on him and submission to him. So may the Lord help us all to follow him as he brings about his good and gracious plans. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you asking you to help us to follow you, to trust you as you bring about your purposes and your plans in the world. We thank you for the model of your son. Form us, form our community, form our church, that it would be shaped like the cross. I pray, Lord, we pray that you would continue to shape us by your message and give us boldness to proclaim it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.